Power was evidence of righteousness. Ancient people binged in equal parts. Poor and rich, bona fide ruler, bona fide slave, they all binged on this notion. The system worked because everyone knew the dominance principle well. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? I don't know why I did that voice, (laughs) because I'm running out of voices. This podcast is aimed at people who feel a deep sense of dislocation, which I think every human, it happens when you're born. And so one way to feel less dislocated is to talk about the deep things in life, the heavy things. And on this podcast, we do it lightly. Theology, history, philosophy, you name it. Especially immersive experiences overseas and in foreign cultures where our guys work at First Things Foundation. Check us out, www.first-things.org. This is our podcast. This is our offering to you. This is Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? And this is the Equality Binge, a conversation about history and something like weaving it together with the notion that we are drunk or maybe on cocaine it could be cocaine or meth meth is tough maybe it's a meth binge today on Wata. hi hi andrew uh guys andrew is our editor he lives in a place called ufa not ufa ufa no ufa Russians yell at me. I don't pronounce it correctly. Although I do take great pride in speaking foreign languages and getting it right, when it comes to Russian, I have yet to feel myself guilty for messing up the language. It's only when you speak it that you feel a responsibility to it. Like Georgian, for example. I feel like I should get that right. For you Russians out there, there is much love. But there's very little language coming from me. Peace to everybody who's listening. This is a solo pod. Back to a solo pod. I, I, a number of people are happy about that. I am too, at least for the moment, although we have some great interviews coming up. I can talk to you about that later. Today, I can't shake an idea, um, and it comes right out of our work. Uh, and I don't know. the. The concept is a binge. We are on a binge. And the we I'm thinking of in the first case, I want to talk about uh, the bingers of the most recent order uh, found all over the Enlightenment world, but now emerging from it. The bingers I'm thinking of, they make up the core of what we call the postmodern movement. So I want to call bingers of the postmodern movement, postmodern bingers. And maybe you're one of them, a person who likes what's happening in Western culture, right? You like the fact that what was is becoming unraveled. And these postmodernist bingers, these cats, are sort of the hottest, latest coolest bingers. 
And their binge is heading towards something like a bad Friday night. Yeah, something that's going to end in something that looks like jail or incarceration. The postmodernists are binging on an idea, and that idea is going to land us all in jail. But I hope it's not the kind of jail that we've seen in the past, like a Siberian jail or a jail that might have been built in Krakow or on the hills of Rwanda. Those are a little, you know, those kind of jails. We don't want this binge to end that way, but there's pretty good evidence that it could. Yet, if we look at history, there's some good news, and that is is that the people of the scientific age, the light people materialists, the people who built what we think of as our culture, well, they binged too. And really, you can still find them binging in places like the 700 Club with Pat Robertson. How is that guy still alive, first of all? If you know who Pat Robertson is, then you're probably old. Or, I don't know, somehow you came upon his channel, deeply embedded in the 700s on like DirecTV, the 700 Club. Those are light people, materialists, just with the Protestant rapping. Wall Street people, people up at Hillsdale College. These are folks, Protestant deist, materialist types who still, I don't know, play a serious role in what we call the new world. But they binged too. And that binge is ending. And I want to get into that because you're probably like, what the heck is he talking about? Well, the old, old world, the people we might call ancient imperialists, folks like the Persians and the Romans, they also binged. Really, they really loved to binge. And their binges ended in like nakedness and all variations on hedonic car crashes. You know, like their binge looked like the movie The Hangover at the end. Yeah. All cultures, all civilizations, almost by definition, all these religions, these ways of seeing the world, all of them have a tendency to binge. And that tendency is to organize around and to worship a single principle above all others. Let me explain. History in many ways shows us how cultures binge on principles, or let's call them ascendant ideals, on visions. And these visions, sometimes, almost always, utopian visions, they create energy to form what we think of as culture. Culture is all about the cult, the highest value. And you can see that Cultures have cult-like tendencies to worship ideals and visions and utopians, and often these visions and the energy that accompanies them, well, these visions build civilization. But just like anyone with a dream, right, actualizing the dream usually ends in a nightmare because, well, dreams are utopian by nature. They are out of reach by nature. They're disassociated from reality. 
And so to get to them, to get to live and fulfill the dream is to live outside of reality. And that's what I mean by binge. That's what the binge is all about. It's to snort a fuel that doesn't take you to your destination. That's what addiction is, right? You get fired up to go somewhere, and the cocaine just won't get you there. And that is the utopian dilemma. Going somewhere where you may not arrive, will not, shall not, cannot arrive. So let's take a look at the postmodern binge for a moment, the emerging 21st century cult, the emerging principle. Postmodern people are on an equality binge. Today's drug of choice, especially in politics, is equality. That's the myth of the emerging postmodernist movement. Look at television today, or don't. It can be kind of depressing, (laughs) but if you do, you'll find this bent over backward energy where producers and marketeers, they sweat little fear beads all day long as they make sure they properly portray the principles of equality, showing us every type of family imaginable in a type of, I don't know, equality image arms race. Take, for example, the Super Bowl commercial where kids race down a mountain as an Audi commercial announcer for the, for the car Audi. Well, the announcer drones on about the wage gap. Yeah, I know. They're showing kids racing down a mountain on go-karts while the announcer talks about a wage gap between daughters and sons. And then in the end of the commercial, yeah, Audi is making this awful inequality nightmare end just like it makes the go-kart race down the mountain end with a little girl acting like a barbarian little boy, winning the race, being macho, and then getting in the car with her macho dad to drive their shiny new Audi home. Super Bowl commercial. Just keep that in mind. They didn't make that for like a Tuesday afternoon during your soap opera. It's it's just really actually hard to describe. And it's harder to watch. Go look it up. I've we included the link. Yeah. In that video, equality will be had. Damn it. It's happening. And definitely go look at the ad where Volkswagen Canada. Yeah, this is real. It tells us their cars are good for polyamorous, non-traditional families. Now, again, we're talking about this principle of equality as a type of meth. Just so you know, in Canada, less than 2% of all people who claim to be in a relationship are in a polyamorous relationship. Polyamorous here means, I don't know, you relate to more than one lover at a time. So less than 2% of people who say, I'm in a relationship, so that's 100 people, less than 2% of them are in a polyamorous relationship. Let me say that again. Less than 2% who say they're in a relationship are in a polyamorous one in Canada. 
Yeah, that's not 2% of marriages. That's 2% of people who say they're in a relationship. And besides the fact that everyone's in a relationship except for maybe Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird who lives under the basement, and even he has Scout visiting him now and then, peering into the window. I mean, besides the fact that kind of, I don't know, everybody's in a relationship or they're dead, this ad is targeting zero people in Canada. Okay, I'm wrong. It's 12 people. And that seems odd. Unless, of course, equality of all the things in the world is the highest value. And if it is, the commercial makes sense. We could go on. I mean, try to watch a movie today where a woman identifying as a woman cries. Uh, just try to find a movie where a woman, <clears throat> especially the protagonist playing a woman, try to find the movie where she cries. Like, how about curls up crying? Like, like a crying mess. Just try to find that. Like, a scared, helpless human who's also a woman. Yeah. Though we know that happens in <laughs> the world called media, it doesn't. Which is weird. In all of our modern productions, you can just feel the director squeezing the viewer for every ounce of equality, loving sympathy. You can feel them soaking up all of the utopian hopes for some sort of rainbow coalition of Pony prancing joy. And, and, uh, it's a drug. But it's not just that. The projections we find in the media are meant to shame those of us who can't woolly up the prancing pony happiness. They're teaching us to feel. They're teaching me to feel. To find the equality tear ducts in my little postmodern eyeballs and they're milking those tear ducts in hopes of an earthly utopia where finally 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 people who have a lot of melanin hug it out with people with less melanin or people with forearm crafted penises hug it out with regular old womb formed penises people so we can all have some sort of orgasmic, egalitarian embrace. I always wonder if these commercials are working on me. Like, am I properly being taught out of my old-fashioned notion of a soul? My old-fashioned notion of a soul is one fully indebted to its melanin and to its sex organs. Like, the soul idea I have is united to genitalia and melanin. While at the same time, it does this weird thing. It's also perfectly transcendent and beyond the melanin and the sex organs. Like, that idea of the soul, am I being taught out of it in favor of the prancing pony happiness? Am I losing my old-fashioned soul for a new-fangled equity soul? I think that's what they're hoping for. 
postmodernists. Equality is what we are supping up daily in our society these days. It's the elixir of the elite, and it's weird to think that some people actually worship this concoction as if it really could end in happiness, because, well, it can't. And we know this by looking at what happens to a society that worships any single principle as a god. Take, for example, the folks we call ancient. Let's look at that epoch for a moment. The ancients and their drug. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Andrew, the swipe. Swish. Swish it. Swish it. If you're listening to this podcast, then I'd like you to consider one thing. An online donation made monthly through our portal at www.first-things.org. It is summertime. For many of you, that's the time when you forget about money and you go on a trip and you put your feet in the sand or that's my preferred place. Maybe you like to go to the mountains where it's foggy and cold. I don't. But if you do, take for a moment the notion that when you donate monthly, we are able to run our operations. Operations are what make the projects work. When we can send and feed people, then we meet the most amazing folks in the most impoverished neighborhoods, and we offer them facilitation on their projects. And when we do that, beautiful things happen, but they got to eat. Help them eat. Send a monthly donation, large or small. Go to www.first-things.org. Sign up to be a monthly donor. Become be a part of our work by being a monthly donor. Back to the show. Is it a show, though? When I'm alone, I'm always thinking, it's just me talking into a microphone, but it's not. You guys are amazing. I've gotten some of the most brilliant emails lately because... It's not just a guy talking. It's a guy talking on behalf of, I don't know, it's I don't know, like a movement, but a movement towards service, towards sacrificing something like all of your time in favor of someone else's beautiful vision. A servant serves others, not themselves. And when you do that first, crazy cool things happen, like relationships, like guys calling me from out of the blue in Las Vegas. Or guys calling me from, or women calling me out of the blue to come to the restaurant and share in a really cool night at the super table. So there's cool stuff happening. I hope you'll be a part of it. But let's get back to this idea of the ancient world. What were they binging on? And I, I just want you to know that the binge is always toward a principle. So if you go back to the epoch, the era, the age before the revelation of Christ, and take a peek at the highest principles of many, if not all, successful societies at the time, you'll find a common theme. That theme is something like control and power, dominance. Empire after empire, think Hammurabi, Nebuchadnezzar, the Sassanids, all the Persians, all the variations on Persian empires, Romans, the Chinese under the Qin, Really, all the empires of the time, they worshipped the notion of dominance. Dominance was a type of evidence. Where one had power, there one had proof of goodness. The gods had smiled upon you because you had the power. 
Nearly all of the imperial deities were those who rewarded their subjects with power. And where the gods of antiquity chose to punish, they punished people by taking away their power. This is clear in the story of the Mandate of Heaven in Qin China, during the Qin Dynasty. The heavens rewarded the emperors with power when the emperor did the will of the gods. The Persians were really good at this type of religion as well. Cyrus the Great, after his defeat of all his Persian enemies, they created the Achaemenid Empire and claimed he was favored by Ahura Mazda, the great creator god of the Persian pantheon. Darius and Xerxes said the same after their victories generations later. And of course, once the Romans ended their 200-year flirtation with republic governance, well, they went on a dominance binge. Seneca, the Roman Stoic philosopher who celebrated the rationalism of the god Zeus, yeah, that's right, Zeus was rational because Zeus attained power. Seneca famously said that the deeds of glorious crimes of genocide were accepted and sanctioned by the people of Rome because they were committed by official order and for the state. And this makes sense when one realizes that the founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus, were fathered in the story by the god of war, Mars. And, well, that fathering was done through the rape of the twin boy's mother, Rhea Silvia. And, well, those boys were eventually orphaned and then raised by a she-wolf before Romulus killed his own brother Remus in a fight over who would rule the new city. And that new city was Rome. God of war as your dad, rape as the process by which you were born, and then fratricide as the way you got your power. Dominance and power. They're in that story of Rome. The ancient world of the non-Abrahamic religions is a world built upon the principle of dominance and upon the backs of those dominated. You can see this, in, especially in the story of Constantine. Yeah, that's right, Constantine, the Orthodox saint. He says clearly that the cross is a symbol by which he will conquer. Constantine was a person of his time. And he was not made a saint because he wanted to conquer in the name of the cross. you got to realize, he was exalted, though, by his pagan followers for saying this. And many Christians have taken that bait too, and they shouldn't. That's another podcast. But even Constantine is still using the language, the power language, the dominance language, right, of the ancients. Anyway, and I want to make this really, really clear. Ancient people accepted power as evidence of goodness. Power was evidence of righteousness. Ancient people binged in equal parts, poor and rich, bona fide ruler, bona fide slave. They all binged on this notion. The system worked because everyone knew the dominance principle well. People accepted their place because place 
was the point. You can also see this in the Hindu idea of the caste system. This is the world, now this is really interesting, this is the world Nietzsche, in some ways, is reclaiming in his writings. He's reclaiming them, this, this dominance culture, but reticently so. Because what he's writing about is a new world where the Christians themselves, themselves have killed the soft, gooey Christian God, the one who loves. And he's saying, and now in that space vacated by Christ must come the superman, the supermensch, the one who will wield power. And that's you, and that's me in this new world. It's the world of Domine that the Western Christians of the dying Roman Empire inherited. It's the one that Nietzsche loved. Not because he loved it, but because he knew it as the only way to operate once the gooey Christ was gone. Yeah. So this old world idea, this ancient old world idea, this, this principle made writ large, dominance, is a temptation to Western Christians and Eastern Christians and all Christians over time. It's the temptation of Christ on the mountain, sitting with the devil, looking down on humanity, and saying, all this can be yours. You can be the one. Your rule will be evidence of your righteousness, Jesus. Dostoevsky, <laughs> now, that dude wrote a whole subchapter. I gotta love Russian writers, because you're, you're cruising along, and then all of a sudden, wait a minute, is this a new book? Within the book? It's like the inception of, of, of great writing. It just goes deeper and deeper. But in that subchapter, right, the Grand Inquisitor in Brothers Karamazov, right, the Grand Inquisitor is Dostoevsky's tale to the Russian people, the prophetic tale of never substitute the principle of power for the person of Christ. Don't do it. But, of course, no one listened to him. And so while the West had run way out ahead and done that with their popes, well, now the Russians did it by right, giving up their inheritance and inviting in the Bolsheviks. Yeah. The Russians were rewarded with really, really powerful assholes called Bolsheviks. And we know how that went. So the dominance binge produces very ugly Friday nights. And that brings us to the light people. And so what about the Enlightenment? What is it that the Baconites, old Francis Bacon, you should take our lightometer test too, see if you turn up as a Baconite. What is it that followers of David Hume, John Locke, Ben Franklin, Thomas Paine, and if you're saying right now, hey, those are all the heroes of the American Revolution, I would say, Exactly. What is it that they all binged on? Like, what is it that the New Worlders, like, say, us, have really binged on until, I don't know, 10 minutes ago when postmodernism reared its half-lovely, half-ugly face? What have the Enlightened materialists, the true New Worlders, the folks 
right, who take our lightometer test and score below an eight, go do it. If you're below an eight, you are a enlightened materialist. <laughs> I mean, it's science, guys. What do the rational intellects of the scientific age binge on? What have we in the West binged on to the point of not being able to binge no more? I think we have imbibed a wicked moonshine called material truth. It's like a liquid fun that we call empiricism. A delicious elixir called the scientific method. I think the drug of choice of the light people has been truth. And if you prefer, and it's probably better to say material truth, scientific certainty. Our light people culture has been hitting the crack pipe of truth. Just look at how we talk in our schools. Or look at how we have talked until, say, 10 years ago. And I was in schools doing this, and I watched it shift. But for all my years as a teacher of brown and black kids in the Bronx, and then really, really, really white kids down in Florida, I always ask the same question at the end of the year in my history class or sometimes in my philosophy class. And it was always to 18-year-olds about to graduate. Every year. Every year. It was like intentional question. During all of these years of schooling, I would ask, during all of this time since kindergarten, in which classes and in which activities did you learn most about the truth? Every year, without exception, 85%, I, I recorded this, 85% of every senior class wrote or voted for math and science class. Sometimes science class would come first, sometimes math. And the science class that always pulled the most votes was, drumroll, Andrew, biology. History, dead last, always. English, second to last. Computer science, that was just weird. Usually a third place because they would always end up having this weird argument about whether it was really a science. Math and science, yep, every year. And that's for, you know, basically for 20 years. Every kid I taught left school thinking, left high school thinking the truthful stuff could be found wherever you applied the scientific method. Or at least wherever you did things that, I don't know, looked like math or looked like dissecting rabbits. Just think about that. Think about how weird that shit is. You learn truth in science class when you practice something like the scientific method, which is to take an actual experiment experience, to take your own human experience and then observe it, formulate, test, theorize. So you find truth by doing a set of steps that take apart what you already experienced as true in an attempt to put it back together as something you now call true. I mean, I already had the experience. So somehow we've all been trained to be like Leonardo da Vinci, a true hero of the Enlightenment. We've been trained to cut up dead things in order to understand living things. That's what we've been doing during the Enlightenment. Material, truth, crack, cocaine, binge, epidemic. 
we've been high on studying the bloody parts. And it's all ended in us knowing about things dead. And that includes the culture we've now killed. It includes the soul we can no longer believe in. Because absolutely obvious, we couldn't find it in the bloody parts. I mean, just think of the way you've grown up if you're over 50. Heck, what? Just actually forget that. Just think of the way you tried to deal with COVID if you're over 50. Or weirdly, if you're under 50. What did you do? You had an experience of COVID. It was surrounding you. You might have even had the thing. It's happening to you. But then you search for studies on the interwebs in order to make sense of the dying around you. You did this very natural thing and tried to find scientific evidence for your gut feelings because you just can't help but engage the scientific method because you're a new worlder. So you observe, you find numbers, you do experiments, you read about experiments done by trusted doctors, also using the scientific method, and then you use the numbers to formulate your own thesis, test the thesis on your friends on Facebook, and then you put on a new, tw- a new tweet that neatly lays out your brand new theory about COVID. Yeah. Don't even lie. You know you did that. And guess what? It's probably the exact same theory you already had buried deep in your soul. The soul you don't really believe you have. (laughs) The one that already presented you the truth long before you started your very scientific inquiry about COVID. Don't even lie. You know you did that on some level. You wanted evidence for what you already knew to be true. What I'm trying to say is, is this kind of approach is stupid. It's very normal for us light people because it is who we have become. This method is our drug of choice. But I'm just telling you, it's a deadly method. This worship of this kind of truth, it, it's not the kind of truth provided by the noetic self. It's a, and the noetic self, the, the noose, that provides a type of truth that's very old world. It's where revelation creates the reality. And that type, that method, that method, right, is starting to reemerge. But it's been dead for a long time. Our binge on the scientific method, by the way, a very fine method, a perfectly fine method, but it has to be confined to its proper role. It has to tell us about one very small aspect of reality, the material world. But when it's not confined, it's the type of truth that mocks reality because it's incomplete. So, I don't know, Andrew. There's some ideas. This pod was just burning a hole in my head. And a lot of it I wrote using an application that I found on my smartphone. So now there's people out there going, well, I know what about that? You're using science. No kidding, I'm using science. Why wouldn't I? The question is, do I believe that the thing I'm using provides me with truth? If I do, I'm dumb. Anyway, if you notice something, we left out the Middle Ages. 
I left them out on purpose because I think that's a whole different podcast. One that says something like, good try, middle ages people. You are shooting for something like a culture built on the principles of, of, <clears throat> the you're binging on the principles of, of truth found in a man. What? That's odd. Mystical even. Yeah. That's the story of trying to build a Christic culture. And spoiler alert, spoiler alert. What's the sound of a spoiler alert, Andrew? That, that didn't work either. That's for another podcast, which is kind of fun. So, Shenny Scuggy Marjos, that means to you the victory often set at the KP table in Georgia. That's our pod for today. Thanks for coming along, guys. Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternos, well, they produce this thing. The First Things Foundation, that's our nonprofit where we send folks who go and take a bet. Here's the bet. That if you live long enough and speak the local language, you'll find local people who are badass and they know what they need, but they don't have resources. We befriend, work with, consult, and facilitate these folks and their vision for a better life. We offer them assistance on their idea, not our own. That's called service. I hope you can support us in this. Come to our Greenville restaurant. That's KP. You guys got to do it. We're looking for two field workers for East Africa. You got to do it. Come on a KB journey. We're going to Georgia September 16th. You got to do it. We're running a Appalachian weekend in the fall slash winter where you come and visit our field workers and enjoy time at the restaurant in one weekend package. You got to do it. And then you got to become a monthly donor. I don't care. Five bucks. Fifty is better. A hundred and you're... You're a big timer. Got to do it. All right, who loves you? Peace out. Share water with friends. Hit us up. Not from this. Hasta luego. Come bufo. And this out. <laughs>